One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone, uh, thank you for tuning into the podcast again this week. I am joined by a very special guest, Rosie Arnold. Hello Rosie. Hello. Um, I'm going to try a new little tech, uh, new little intro thing, so you'd be the first, so please uh, bear okay. with me on this one. So Rosie Arnold is the creative partner and head of art at AMV BBDO, which for those that don't know is a highly respected advertising agency headquartered here in London. Prior to that, she was at BBH where she was the 11th ever employee and remained there for 33 years at a time when BBH was considered by many to be the greatest independent ad agency in the world. Clearly I didn't do my punctuation in this intro. (laughs) Uh, BBH founder John Hegarty has been quoted as saying that Rosie has been one of the stars of BBH's rise to fame, a creative thinker of outstanding qualities. And outside of her day job, she has uh, also become... uh, She's also became one of the... No, she's the second female to become a DNAD president in the organisation's history and is also a figurehead of equality in the workplace, as well as an educator and supporter of emerging creative talent. Rosie, welcome to the show and thank you very much for being here. Hi, thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> a bit floored by that. That John Hickety obviously got the cheque. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so I thought we could start off easy and ask you kind of what is the head of art because I know that this is a role which is somewhat kind of evolved or or maybe not well it's kind of what I want it to be really it's kind of strange because I'm not just exclusively sort of redesigning other people's work I am really just a creative director but um, I have a say and an input and a, and a help to art directors in the building and work quite closely with designers so if there's a design thing coming up for the whole agency yep. they'll speak to me but it's a sort of loose fluid role I think. right so it like um, in the traditional sense of, of the role, if there is one, is there a traditional sense of it? Yeah, I mean, there's a wonderful art director, Mark Reddy, at BBH, and he's made it his own. So he is much more involved with having a really, really tight grip on everything that comes out of the agency, how it looks and how it's, how it's photographed. And um, I've got a department which is much more senior than BBH with a lot of really talented um, art directors. So I'm there really as a resource for the younger um, creatives and um, you know I do cast my eye over things and try and have some sort of influence So did you that. have a design background? Yeah, yeah I went to Central St Martins and did graphics. Right, yeah because that's the reason I ask actually is because as an art director myself but as having studied design uh, you know I find my my role now being a little bit of a hybrid of the two and I've always wondered maybe that's I was curious to know what the title meant you know. Yeah I think I think, it, as I said, it's a very senior department and there are a lot of very talented people and it was like, what role can we carve out for yeah. Rosie? Because I didn't really... There wasn't a role for me going to be sort of um, deputy ECD or, and I, I, I wanted to be closer to the work, really. Yeah. Uh, it, was quite, it was quite a tough decision, uh, you know, leaving, deciding what it was that I wanted to do. Um, and I felt a little bit guilty that I hadn't gone as a CCO somewhere or an ECD because there's a sort of weight of responsibility for all the other fantastic women out there to see um, women 
taking the top jobs. Um, so I did actually sort of wrestle with my conscience about that. And I'd had a difficult personal time in my life. And I thought, actually, what I really love is I really love the ideas, being around the ideas and helping and inspiring other people. And it felt like the perfect role for me. Good, good. So uh, f- as I mentioned in your intro, you was you were at BBH for 33 years. And I'm trying to find stuff that people wouldn't have asked you about this already. <laughs> and me personally, I've never held a job for more than two years. <laughs> and it strikes me that in the nicest way possible that you have to be quite content and happy and in what you're doing to to kind of be there for that for that period of time yeah i mean the agency was absolutely exceptional i was incredibly fortunate to be there at a time that it just was you know going from one thing to the next which was always great it also changed so it was like a different agency all the time you start when it's very very small and then it grew quite rapidly you know there was a wonderful time when there were about 60 people which I loved um, and then you know by the time I left there were about 450 people so the agency itself changed it relocated several times um, and you know I grew and evolved with the, with the place but ultimately I've always been inspired by the opportunity to do great work with great people and I, I don't know I, I think it, it you know it's something within me that I wouldn't wouldn't see the grass as greener somewhere else I just knew that we had the best brands to work on the best clients the best the best people and the best environment so it never felt like you know n- why would I go anywhere else? So I might go for m- more money or more power or something like that, but that's not why I got up in the morning. So that's why I stayed. So I actually have uh, one question with regards to that. So when you're the 11th employee at a company, it's very different from it being a 450-person kind of yeah. beast. At what point in that in that progression did you know, like, this is a, like a, going to be a great agency or is a great agency? And what was the tipping point? I have to be honest, it... <laughs> The minute I started, I knew it was going to be a great agency. I mean, very few agencies start with three such great clients. So they had Whitbread, um, Audi and Levi's. So from the get-go, the Levi's work and the Audi work was absolutely phenomenal. And um, everybody was talking about BBH and I, I was just so lucky to have been in the right place in the right time. So right was that because the people that founded it had reputations? I know that... Um, yeah. Did John come from Saatchi's? John used to work um, with, oh, I can't remember which Sarchi it was, Charles, Charles <laughs> Sarchi. Um, and then he, Nigel and John, worked and ran TBWA um, and they came together with nothing um, and started BBH. Yeah, I think and they're very principled as well. They had a really, really strong idea about what they wanted their company to be. And the other thing that I think is really interesting in this day and age is it wasn't about we're going to start an agency and we're going to sell it in five years and we're going to be multimillionaires, which I think a lot of people do. They actually had real, you know, real belief and real appetite for doing great work. So have you never been tempted to uh, do the same and start your own? Well, this is this is where I'm going to get into all sorts of tricky water about being a woman. Um <laughs> No. <laughs> One, because, again, BBH was so brilliant and I would be going... I think I, John, John and Nigel left TBWA because they wanted to do things their way and I really always thought that they did it brilliantly, so why would I put myself under the stress of putting my house on the market and putting everything into, you know, the roll of a dice about whether it was going to be good enough. But also, 
I think at the age and stage I would have been doing that was when I was a young mother. And again, you know, you want a secure, you know, a, a secure grounding for your family. And I was the breadwinner. So, you know, I didn't have a security blanket about, oh, well, you know, I can just do this and everything's going to be all right. So, so what, um, uh, I mean, I, I expected to get into this later on, but it just seems as it's come up now. What is uh, the answer to that? Or what do you see, or what is the proposed kind of ways to deal with it, that kind of situation? What? Of, uh, of, of becoming a young mother and um, and wanting the security, whereas... Well, I think, well, everyone's circumstances is different and everybody's personality is different. Um, but for me, I felt fortunate that I'd established my career before I had my son, my first son. Um, and that made it very much easier to go back into the business because I had a reputation, I had a portfolio of good work and I, and I had a relationship um, with BBH who knew me and liked the way I worked. So, it, But even then, that was 26 years ago, it was unusual for a woman to go back to work. Right. And um, so I did, have a, you know, I did have to sort of deal, deal with that. Um, yeah, so I think I would say to women, you know, you just need to work really hard at making sure that, you know, you've established yourself before you go and have kids, if you want to come back at the same level. Good advice. Uh, I'm going to come back to all of that, but mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll rewind for a, li- for a little bit. So, again, 33 years, many people uh, kind of credit going to work day in, day out and just putting in the hard graft is for the reason for their successes. Do you think there was more than that for yourself, or do you think that kind God, of? I hope so. <laughs> I think I think it's creativity is a really interesting field to be in. It is every job you work on is different. Every job you hope is going to be the best thing you've ever done. Every job you ever do never turns out exactly how you want it, and it's never good enough. And I think those are the things that spur you on to continually try and improve and try and be better and. It makes it a very varied job. I've always felt incredibly lucky to have stumbled upon a career in advertising. So you travel the world, you work on different projects. So it's a different job every day. It's not as if I'm going in and doing exactly the same thing. And every brief is a different problem. So it's so varied. And you feel like we've got control of our successes in that respect? Uh, Yes. I mean, there is... You know, there is a little bit of luck and there's a lot of hard graft, more so now, I think. So to try and... There's always a lot of stakeholders who need to buy into the idea. Um, I'm going to sound really old-fashioned and I know this is going to be a terrible thing to say, but I I actually liked um, the business before we had so much control. So, you know, if you're on location and no one could contact you and you decided to put the cast in purple jumpsuits you'd have to live with that decision and there was nothing anybody could do about it because that was your decision at the time and there was nothing you could do to fix it in post when you got back. So it made you much more responsible. I look back at the films made in those days and don't think they were any worse. Maybe the special effects weren't as good. So there's sort of swings and roundabouts. Um, I think people, everybody wants to be part of the decision process now and I think that makes things longer and harder and um, it Everybody taking responsibility isn't a great thing because I think you need a few really 
you know, visionary people to guide the process through. Well, I was going to say, when it, uh, kind of creativity by committee, it tends to water everything down, or it seems to generally. Mm. Um, so that is something I was, when I was talking to Barry last week, it was about how do you uh, convince clients to, to roll with good ideas? Do you have any uh, te- techniques that you tend to use? Um, I, I, I get very excited about ideas. And um, I try and give the client that same excitement because I think if you open up to the possibilities of how good it could be and maybe show them other things, maybe which have got nothing to do with the project you're working on, but maybe it's a title sequence from a film that you've been inspired by and you show that to somebody and you can demonstrate how the power of creativity has really transformed something that that might have just been completely throwaway. So I try and inspire and delight and surprise and get people to feel that the project we're working on has got that potential. Do you think that that um, suggests that creatives should have a relationship with clients because they tend to be the ones that are you know, really trying to fight for, the, for, the, for their ideas? I think if I look back at my best work, it's the work where I've had a really good relationship with the client and there's an element of trust because you know, you're asking clients to put their reputation and an enormous sum of money in their business on the line for an untried creative idea. And I think there has to be an element of um, trust and belief in that person. I mean, I remember years ago working on the Lynx Getting Dressed ad where the couple pick up their clothes and um, there was a very expensive track, music track, that we were, wanted to put on it and it was way over budget and, you know, I, I had the conversation with the client and I was in my kitchen and the signal was bad and he was somewhere else and it was, you know, it was a big decision. And I remember we basically I agreed that I was going to hold hands with them and jump off the cliff together. So, you know, if we're going to if we're going to go down, we'll both go down. Both of our reputations will go down with this one. But we'd got such a good relationship. He was he did it and it was yeah. great. And the, and the track worked. And Amazing. You know, so he rolled with it. He rolled with it. Bless great. Um, you recently moved to AMV. <clears throat> Do it, is it essential that you put the BBD, BBDO on that? Um, I'd call it AMV. Yeah. It takes too long. It'll um, be here forever. So you, where well, you became a creative partner, so yeah. congratulations. And I wondered if you've ever looked back at your career and kind of wished that you'd broke that cycle sooner. Um, no. No? No. I loved BBH. Um, it just got to a point where, as I say, you know, my husband died and I, I had a very difficult time and it felt... Very sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was rubbish. Um, but um, it felt weird going back and being in the same place where my life had changed so fundamentally. So... Um, it's no reflection on BBH. It was just my, my personal circumstances. And as I said, it was really interesting looking around to decide where on earth do you go. And again, do I go to a little hot shop? Do I do something completely different? And I was judging the uh, BTAA awards. Um, and I was completely and utterly bowled over by the variety and quality of the work coming from AMV, I was going, is that is that AMV too? So, you know, from Smart Meters, I knew they did Guinness, um, they did the Curries with Jeff Goldblum, there was um, Tenor Men. I mean, bloody hell, that was completely, utterly, unexpectedly brilliant. And it felt like every single ad that I was seeing that I loved came from AMV, and they all had such a unique voice that was so appropriate to the brand, it just felt like that's the place I've got to go. Perfect. So I think it's a, you know it's good that you you're in a position to go 
there. I want to go there, which is <laughs> amazing. Lucky, yeah. <laughs> which I think going back for you know young graduates and stuff, I think they really it helps to have your sets your sights set on somewhere, right? And 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 to appreciate the kind of work and to to. I think my own personal opinion, you may very uh, feel very differently, is that sometimes I see graduates that have kind of gone to a less well-known agency purely because they want a job and and then they find themselves in this bit of a rut where they're kind of aspiring for those agencies where some creatives are just like they're gung-ho I'm going to be in that agency or at least if not that one that I can feel like a transition to there later on yeah um, and I think that's a wise decision yeah it's it's a tough decision I mean it's so tough getting a job and um, I think I think if if you find yourself naturally gravitating to an agency's um, work, that's a great thing because that means you love what they do. You will respect the people who are going to be judging your work. And you probably have a natural inclination to create work like that. So I think that's a really good starting block. And I apologise to all my um, my colleagues and friends, but I'm <laughs> going to give you a bit of advice out there, which is something I did, which I found enormously helpful, which was um, when I was at art school, there wasn't any advertising courses. And um, I thought, oh, I, I want to do that, think of ideas. And I had a portfolio that was just fine art and illustration and paintings. And, you know, and um, I looked up all the work that I liked and I found out the, the creative behind that work. And then I tracked them down and arranged to go and see them at whatever agency it was. And I found this wonderful woman called Judy Smith, who was at CDP, which was the kind of BBH of its era. And she, bless her, looked at my work and said, well, you actually have to do some <laughs> some ads. <laughs> I was like, oh, do I? <laughs> and um, she pointed me in the direction of DNAD, so I did evening classes. But what I did was, because I respected her and I loved her work and she was very generous with her time, I kept going back to see her. So I sort of found myself a guru in an agency, and an agency that I really would have liked to work at. BBH, I don't think, even existed at that point. And I got myself um, a placement in the summer there, and I built up my portfolio. And they did actually uh, offer me a job, but I'd then been working... I was told about the freelance work at BBH, and I thought, oh, I'd love BBH. Um, so I was in a very fortunate position. But I think my advice is, if, if there's somebody's work you admire, and they will get to see, and they will see you... Go and see them and see if you can build up a relationship because you will build up a portfolio, you'll build up a relationship with that person and very probably the place they work. So you're positioning yourself in the best possible place to sort of try and get a job there. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, on Along the kind of same subject of uh, surrounding yourself with great people, you recently quoted uh, David, Ab uh, David Abbott saying that it's far to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Um, I just wondered if you could mention a few people that you've worked with over the years, people that have really stood out and what it was about them in particular that uh, made them kind of stand out people to you. Oh, God. Well, first of all, let me just tell you, every single person I've worked with is smarter than I am. <laughs> I don't know quite how I'm going to miss so many people off. Obviously, John Hegarty is my complete guru and I've learnt, I hope I've learnt so much from him. He, I think the thing that he has that is extraordinary, um, other than a fountain of creativity and wisdom and integrity and um, flair and God, I don't know where to start with John Hegarty, but the thing I observe from him that I've tried to do um, is when a, you walk into his office and he goes through the work and the ideas you've got, he may not like a single thing, but you leave the office feeling inspired and you know a direction to go. And that's a real skill rather than just knocking you right down and you don't know where to start. So that's something I really 
try and do. Um, God, there's so many great people I've been fortunate enough to work with, and it's not just it's not just creatives. It's also great account men who can actually understand how to sell the work. So you know, I remember working with Ben Fennell um, when he was junior, and he'd come in, he'd drive us all mad by grilling us about the script. So we all were like, Ben, don't you understand? <laughs> it's about this. And then I realised that what he was doing was he was preparing himself for every single question the client could possibly ask him so that, you know, when he went to sell work, this is before, you know, you know, I was going to sell work myself, he was absolutely prepared and had understood the points that were absolutely unmovable and the points that you might have a little bit of flex. So that's a really inspired, intelligent um, account man. Um, well, with, with, with account men, I, I, this seems to be, or historically, it seemed to have been like the creative versus the account man because the account man's trying to appease the client, but yeah, you want to get your creative idea through. And then when I, you know, I did a brief stint at Widens, and it was like some of the ideas that came up were ludicrous, and these account people would have to go to the client <laughs> and, and sell it in. And uh, but I always think it's nice for creators to form good relationships with their account people because, and to also have an understanding of the business side, so that this you can rationalise your craziness if you have to, if, you, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think I think generally we're all a team, we're all on the same side. And I mean, and the other big shout out I must do, who were so long ago, and I know I'm going to offend a million people by not mentioning them, and you're all wonderful, um, <laughs> was um, uh, Nick Worthington and John Gorse who I think I was their first mentor or, you know, and um, they surpassed me within moments. They were so brilliant. But I, I think what I found extraordinary about them as a team was they'd come with um, what essentially was a really corny joke. <laughs> and I had yeah. this book of, like, you know, the world's best pub jokes, and you'd go through it and you'd go, there's a lot of your ideas coming from here. And then they executed them. In the most stunning way. So they did Levi's Drugstore, they did Levi's Creek, that you know, they did Polaroid, they they had a really strong creative relationship with Michelle Gondry. They were just fantastic creatives and I hold them up to other people I work with just to say, you know, that was a zillion million years ago. But that is true, fantastic craft and creativity. On the subject of your team and who's surrounding you. Um, it's kind of been in the press recently, the, not to talk badly on BBH at all, but they've had a bit of a talent drain. And there was a point in time when they had to slack off a bunch, of, like a large segment of employees, yeah. which is something that a lot of agencies go through. It's the way of the industry. But um, I was curious to know if kind of you were responsible, uh, not responsible, that's the <laughs> horrendous <laughs> no. way to say that, if you had... if you had a responsibility in deciding who had to go. And as from a leadership and management point, how do you go about making those decisions? Um, I didn't, um, fortunately, because I think I would have found that very, um, very hard. That was the period when I actually was away caring for my husband. So, you know, um, I didn't have to make... I had to make lots of other horrible decisions yeah, <laughs> which on a life basis, but that was one of the lovely places that BBH was. It didn't make me make those horrible decisions as well. So, yeah. I'm, you know, I... I've never had to do that, and um, I think that's probably another reason why the thought of going in as a global or a you know CCO or whatever, I I still am, you know, a bit. Yeah, do you, you think you you may have to make those decisions at some point? Um, I suppose I've been involved with discussions about it. Yeah, um, but it's a horrible. 
you know, it's a horrible. If you don't mind me digging a little deeper in those discussions, Ooh. what tends to come up as like the thing? I, the, I'm saying this so that people that are listening can know what they can do to to make themselves not uh, not yeah, yeah not vulnerable. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's the the great thing about being a creative is that it's a meritocracy, and you know, if you're a team and you're not performing and you're not getting your work bought and, it, and, and if you are, it's not being made well, it's obvious. And, um, and that's, as, as a creative, that's what you have to do to keep your job. You have to do good work and you have to get it made. And, you know, it's a terrible thing. Lots of people come in with every hope and enthusiasm and you can see that it just takes a long time to get a client or get a bit of work bought for for various reasons now, whether it's research or they, the the product changes. So it can you can be somewhere for a year before you get anything out, and you need to have tenacity and enthusiasm and the drive to keep picking yourself up and having another go and not being defeated by it because something will get bought, um, and you just have to make sure that you are shepherding it to make sure that the best thing you possibly can do gets bought. And and I think as a creative, you will know that if you're in a vulnerable position, because you'll know that you haven't had anything bought or the one thing you did make wasn't very good. So that's, you know, that's the good thing, because you know yourself as a creative. Whether you're the industry's, there's so many agencies out there, people shouldn't be discouraged per se, but it's a nice kick up the backside, I guess, if, if anything. But... Um, yeah, it's just unfortunate part of the industry. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Going on to a lighter subject. So in 2007, you took a three-month sabbatical at uh, the Royal College of Art mm-hmm. and where you were taught by uh, the legendary illustrator Quentin Blake as well as a, a host of other tutors. And I was curious to know why you decided to do that, what did you learn from the experience and why do it um, later on in your career when, by everyone else's standards, you're kind of uh, a key figure already? Um I want. I wanted to go just because I had a personal, crazy art project that I wanted to do, and I wanted to have access and knowledge about how to make these crazy things that I wanted to make. And while I was there, I thought, oh well, I'll just do a bit of this and a bit of that, and you know that there were the most fantastic um, cultural historical lectures that were wonderful. I'm not really an illustrator, but because Quentin Blake was there, I thought, oh well, I'll do this project <laughs> that he's doing. I don't think my illustrations are particularly good, but it was it was a really amazing experience. Um and I I really just liked completely immersing myself in something that was entirely creative. But I was the client and um, you know, there was no um commercial imperative. It was just something that I wanted to do. And I'm still I'm still creating these crazy things. I'm been talking to John Hegarty about having an exhibition in his new garage yeah, so, space. So talk, uh, yeah, John's doing like a startupy thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so tell us about your artwork. Okay, <laughs> this is where you're going to lead me away in a straitjacket. I'm really fascinated by how an object which looks as if it's got no intrinsic value. So let's imagine it's a little bit of bone or stone or something you pick up. In, in, in the, uh, I'm not Catholic, but you know how they'll take a bone and they'll say that's from St Anthony, and then they'll put it in a glass vase and then they'll put gold and jewels and suddenly it becomes this object where you are aware that the thing in the middle of it is something precious uh, or valuable in some way so um, I've been sort of collecting bits of rubbish and I thought well I need to get them from famous people so or a link to a famous person so 
even though it's a bit of rubbish, you're drawn to it to just have a look at it. You know how memorabilia is fascinating. And then I've allowed the object to sort of tell me how to present it in an interesting way. So um, I wrote to David Hockney and I said, please, could you send me any old bit of rubbish? (laughs) (laughs) And he sent me a camel cigarette packet that he signed. So um, I've just got got some um, taxidermy wings. So I'm trying to make the... um, the cigarette packet fly because I know that he believes in freedom for smokers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just a wonderful, it's a really wonderful, beautiful thing. And I've yeah. got this large bird cage that I've been putting it in, so that's one of my mad things. And I've got a, um, a it's towel. It's a very, very conceptual stuff. Yes, it is very conceptual. And I've, I've got a bit of the Berlin Wall and I've made a large segment of wall and the Berlin Wall now spins round so it's free. <laughs> I've always liked this idea of, uh, say... Damien Hurst walking down the street and passing a homeless man, one of it like a dot on a piece of paper, and <laughs> what see observing what he'd do with it, you know, because <laughs> yeah. something that's worth you know maybe thousands of pounds or whatever, and he'd probably use it as uh, roach for a cigarette or something, yeah. you know, yeah, like yeah, that's it, an interesting thought. Yeah, just the uh, take things out of a, the context, you know. I guess it's just a reverse of what you've just said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. Completely separate to- uh, topic, but you uh, became a DNAD president again. Mm-hmm. Congratulations! And you were there for the fiftieth year. And I'm not sure if this is correct, but I believe you introduced the white pencil. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, firstly, what is it like to be a DNAD president? Um, how has that affected your life? Like, what additional responsibilities and stuff have you had to take on, and and why the white pencil? Well, it was a massive honour. Um, I've always loved DNAD. It's the thing that, you know, along with Judy, uh, got me into the business. Um, I totally love the fact that um, it is a charity and it educates people. Um, and, you know, it, as I say, I've, I love it. It's a fantastic profession, as it, I love design. So um, the fact that it's introducing and, and helping more people get into the industry is wonderful. All the profits go back into, you know, um, education. So... Um, despite the fact that it's a sort of self-congratulatory kind of award show. Um, I also believe in award shows, by the way, um, because I do think it um, rewards excellence and it tells... It's sort of... The way I've always regarded it is if I was looking for a solicitor and I have no idea what it takes to be a solicitor, you make sure that they've got the adequate qualifications and um, for clients or for people outside the industry or for people who have no idea about creativity, how do you assess whether where you're going is any good or not or whether the team you're working with is any good or not. So there are sort of qualifications um, for business as a creative. Um, but better than that, it does inspire greatness and competition and reward. And I, I agree with all of those. And it's a sort of showcase for the world's best work. So um, to be leading up, heading that up, with, again, a, a group of incredibly talented individuals um, uh, was a real honour. Um, and we wanted to make the 50th incredibly special so I was working with Tim Lindsay who had actually worked at BBH many years ago and he's been completely brilliant for the uh, for the charity and had a lot of initiatives and you know he worked really hard to make that gala show incredible um we had the whole of the Apple design team there with Johnny Ive wow <laughs> amazing as if did but, you get to talk to him uh yes I did wow I did. and um but it was um in a moment of madness, Tim and I decided that we were going to present the whole gala night because it was a charity. So we were going to save money because um, presenters cost a lot of money 
you know, tens of thousands of pounds, which we were going to put back into the charity. And I think I hadn't really thought about it <laughs> until, <laughs> until I was like, oh, OK, so we're on stage all night presenting awards. So we did the first half of the evening was presenting the Industries Awards that year. And then the second half of the evening was um, the top 10, you know, um, people and giving the top three their awards. So the top 10 art directors of the last 50 years, the top 10 production companies, the top 10 directors, the top 10 designers. Oh, my goodness. So I stood up and looked on stage. And there was sort of Ridley Scott and um, wow. uh, Hugh Hudson, who I actually gave an award to, and Tony Kay and, you know, Bob Gill. And, you know, the, it was just Michael Johnson. It was just like and everybody, everybody you could possibly ever want to impress. And I'm not a professional presenter so my knees turned wow. to jelly what a fantastic and it was, opportunity yeah. to... so it was amazing it yeah. was an amazing night um so there was a lot of public speaking again something i don't really love doing but um i felt it was incredibly important as a woman to go out there and be a figurehead for other creative women is it um, that you don't enjoy doing it or is it that you don't you're you don't feel uh great at it um, probably both. Um, the the woman before me um, was Mary Lewis, who was a designer, so she'd done her bit for design. So that's and I was doing my bit for advertising. I think I, who likes public speaking? <laughs> I, I, I personally, I get a buzz out of putting myself in uncomfortable situations. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of guys really do like it. I'm better at it now, I d- and it's because I just did so much of it. Um, and I've, I think it's also a learning curve, isn't it, to, to understand that, you know, actually you're not doing Shakespeare. So if you go wrong and you don't say the things you initially said you were going to say, it doesn't matter because nobody can see your script. So that was helpful. Yeah. And that, you know, in an audience of 2000 or whatever it is, you can't really see people. So that's kind of helpful. <laughs> that's a good win. <laughs> that's a good win. Yeah. Uh- I was going to ask, so you're regularly asked me... Uh, oh, I haven't asked you... about the white pencil. Oh, go. Finish the white pencil, white pencil. White pencil, yeah. White pencil, very quickly. Andy Sandos um, yeah. from Work Club, actually, it was he had this idea, which I completely, utterly stole. <laughs> well, you know, it's always good. <laughs> Being really honest here. Yeah. Um, but we, I think we, the three of us went, that is a brilliant idea, and we have to introduce it because it will encourage people to do good with their marketing budgets. And something, again, I passionately believe that advertising can be... A force for good. Um, I know it's getting a lot of stick at the moment, post Pepsi, um, but I think that's an entirely different thing. I think that's more of a sort of cynical hijack of, oh look, we're trying to put a good message out of there, as opposed to doing actively doing something good yeah. with your budget. So yeah, oftentimes the white pencil doesn't necessarily feel like a ad campaign. It's yeah. more you've there's a great partnership that's resulted in something spectacular amazing idea that will genuinely change the world like you know the three word postcode for instance um you know so things like that which are wonderful sorry i just interrupted no 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 (laughs) not all that's this is what it's about um so i was going to say you're asked to be a jury member and i was curious to know what your philosophy is when looking when you're looking to judge work i'm always motivated by how good the work is so i know there's comments about people who are political or something like that but I think real creatives don't care about who did it or where it came from um, or even who the client is I think you just have to look at work and think is it new is it fresh is it innovative is it beautifully executed does it stay with me does it do the job has it changed the way I think about whatever it is I'm meant to be <laughs> thinking about so you know I think you know in your gut as well don't you when you see something oh, I wish I'd done 
Yeah. So just picking up on one thing you said there is uh, it doesn't you don't necessarily need to see the client. Does the project not uh, revolve around the client? No, no, no. Uh, Sorry, think I, about the client. So, right. so there are rumours of people who, put, who vote politically. So they might go, my client is Pepsi and this ad is Coke. So I'm going to vote Coke down so ah, that really? Pepsi gets it. So I'm not interested in that. But are, are, are the rumours, are, are they found? Uh, I think it depends who you've got. So I think if you're very heavily affiliated to yeah. the welfare of a particular agency, yeah. that might compromise you in the voting. That's why I said a true creative goes yeah. thinking, all I care about is that when the awards are out there and my name is on it as one of the jury members, I'm going to be proud that that piece of work has won. And I think if you're not like that then you're probably going to be swayed by different political has there um, ever been a time in your uh jury what's the word jury experience, I jury don't know. experience <laughs> yeah that you've ever had to fight for for something yeah um so i was on the can jury funnily enough with nick worthington and dave droger um when was it 1999 i think it was something like that anyway it was the year when Sony Balls had just come out and there were 23 angry men very late at night in Cannes um, voting for the Grand Prix. And let me tell you, doing the TV judging or the film judging for Cannes is a laborious process. You're there for eight days, eight in the morning till 11 at night, watching ads, voting on them for a week before. So you've had a long week. Yeah. And, um, and then it comes to the big denouement. What is going to be the overall Grand Prix? And I was absolutely flabbergasted because secret voting up comes. There was a kind of few contenders, and um, Tony Balls wasn't there. wasn't wasn't the Grand Prix. And to my mind, that was absolutely incredible because that was a game changing bit of communication. And everything else felt like an ad, and that felt like absolutely blew away all the other ads. And Dave, Nick, and I were like, you know, Henry Fonda, 12 Angry Men. And because it started with only three votes out of 23, it didn't win the Grand Prix. I obviously do not have Henry Fonda's skills about, you know, manipulating or <laughs> cajoling or persuading or whatever it was. I think we, we got it more to sort of... Just for anyone that's listening who's a millennial who might not have watched 12 Angry Men, so 12 Angry Men <laughs> is basically someone convinces a room of jury members to switch their votes. Right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Sorry, folks. <laughs> and Sony Balls is an ad where yeah. there's a lot of b- bouncing coloured balls so, bouncing down so, hills in uh, San Francisco. I, I have some input into... Uh, not input, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so there's two ads that I've seen in my time that when I've seen the the inspiration... And I, and I know that every ad has a, a, a inspiration and can be drawn to something. Um, but Sony Balls and Honda Cog both kind of afterwards got a little quite a bit of stick for having very, very closely replicated the sources of inspiration. So the the Sony Balls was like an American TV show where they chucked a bunch of stuff down the exact same hill, including bouncy balls, watermelons. And don't get me wrong, the ad itself was fantastic and communicated mm-hmm. and was probably, by all accounts, the best ad by, by a mile. Um, but do you think that for an idea to be warran- warranted as the best, that it needs to be wholly original? Um, I think it's, if you look at any ad or, you know, any bit of um, art, in fact, it's 
there's always influences. You know, yeah. Picasso said artists steal, and yeah. I think that's true. I think it's how you use it and whether it works for what you're trying to say. And there are so many things. You know, the John Lewis woman to a you know growing up with a red dress. You know, where she yeah. you know, always a woman to me. That was a much more direct copy from an actual ad. Whereas I think if you've used a film reference, it's not quite as tricky. Um, but I do think that was a... It changed... It really did change and influence years of advertising after it. Easy to say in hindsight, but I think we could recognise that that was a, a game-changer. Um, and COG, to, you know, to a certain extent. I mean, that was a very fresh way of advertising a car. Um, so I'm not so worried... Yeah. If you've, you know, because you can probably trace most things to, oh, that was of done course. Like that I think it's about you know. being, like they say, hiding your sources or, yeah. uh, and looking for inspiration in unusual places. I don't think either of those sources of inspiration were like, you know, things that were readily accessible. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm just trying to think of any other ads that are difficult when you're sitting in a room with a microphone. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, it's true, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, me and you both. Yeah. <laughs> I got some photos in here the other week and it's literally like these these things on the side, basically the same size as my head. <laughs> um, Headphones you're talking about, by yes, the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk uh, about your um, something that you're kind of very well known for, which is basically helping with the... Uh, not only equality, but also just underprivileged people getting into the industry, uh, underrepresented people getting into the industry. And I read a, a fact, whether it's true or not, I'm, I'm, I don't know the source, that 12% of London's creative directors are women. Um, and up here, you're somewhat of a figurehead to change increased diversity in the work for, workforce. Uh, why is this happening and what can we do to make a change? And maybe I can tie into that yeah. Tim Lindsay's response, which was... He believes that it has to come from a, an economical standpoint that um, actually when there's a more more diverse workforce, agencies tend to perform better. Uh, yeah, well, I think agencies do perform better. Um, I, but I suppose clients, people, uh, people running a business will need hard facts about that. Um, you know, one of the things we're doing is we're communicating to um, people who are not in the industry. And guess what? There are all sorts of diversity outside our little, you know, our agencies and our agency walls. And I think you're better placed if you've got a mixed group of people. And and one thing I feel kind of almost sad about in that I feel, you know, I'm a white middle class woman, so I'm privileged. I'm not, yes, you know, I, I've always feel a little bit of a charlatan when people sort of talk about me as if I'm a kind of minority and haven't I done well and there's so few women. Yes, that's all true. But, you know, there's a, a lot of Asian people who aren't represented, a lot of black people who aren't represented. And, you know, there's a lot of different diversity that we're not thoroughly representing yet in our workforces anywhere. And so I always sort of feel, yes, great, let's get more women in, but let's also extend that to all sorts of people. And, you know, there is an insight that you feel if you're, you know, if you're from a different group that you can bring that will actually make the work better. And, you know, I think I think it's too long it's been sort of white middle-class men. So what initiatives are kind of in place at the moment to, 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 to start to transform or shape the way the industry's set up right now? Well, I think it is a meritocracy, as I've said, so we have to get people educated earlier 
that it's a, a potential career for them. And that means also, you know, one of the things that DNA do, are doing, which is great, which is the foundation, you know, and the only qualification for that is that you don't have a qualification, which opens up, you know, our industry to kids that have no idea that you can actually design the game. You can be the lighting cameraman, you can be the director, you can be the person that thinks of the ad, you can design the postage stamp. And I think getting to them at a much earlier age as well. So let's start talking to kids at 14. Let's start talking to them at the point where actually they can start pursuing the qualifications they need that will inform their life choice at the end. And I think too long we've been talking to kids who are already at art school. And, yeah. and again, they've already kind of made their mind up that's what they want to do. And they're probably from a more privileged background too. And I really agree with you just on the basis that I remember my childhood growing up and kind of being the cliche being told that art doesn't pay and that yeah. I, that was all I was into was art, media and graphics. And um, at, at, at primary school, it was just art. And I was like, this is where I'm at. And, and thankfully, I pursued it. But so many people, I believe, got turned off from that pursuit on the basis that there was no financial career for them to, to be had. So yeah. it's good to be able to be a role model to younger people as well as, as you say, people yeah, that are Yeah, I mean, there. it's ironic, isn't it? Because I sort of feel I've had an incredibly fortunate life and career um, pursuing the thing I love. And as you say, you know, even today, so my younger son um, went to Glasgow School of Art. He's doing fine art. He's, you know, trying to carve his life as an artist. He probably won't make any money ever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Leo, you will. You will. <laughs> um, but I really love seeing his passion for it and the fact that he's, you know, um, he, he was really good about it because I, my husband was an artist as well and we didn't, obviously, we'd be the biggest hypocrites out if we dissuaded him from, from doing it. But I, he did say to us he really appreciated the fact that we were encouraging him because still, even today, his contemporaries parents would say oh no you know you don't want to do art there's no there's no future in it there's no jobs and I remember we laughed we looked at um I think it was the Guardian or something had a spreadsheet about how many people got an associated job from their university degree so at the top of that was if you go into medicine you're gonna get a job in medicine but at the very bottom was if you go to art school you're gonna get a job in art and I thought they're not looking at that in the right way because there are this country is brilliant in terms of, you know, animators, illustrators, filmmakers, set designers, fashion designers, you know, we lead the world in a lot of those skills. And people don't see that those jobs are out there and you can get them. For sure. And there's an element of, I believe, some fulfilment in those careers oftentimes as opposed to doing it purely for financial means. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. So um, I think some people believe that... Or, how to phrase this without getting myself in trouble, that there's no, really no difference between boys and girls. And as someone that's got uh, two boys, I believe, and, mm -hmm. and three stepdaughters... Mm -hmm. I've, you have done your homework. Uh, I've done my homework. Oh, I know, homework. it's kind of creepy, right? <laughs> it is really creepy. <laughs> Sorry, Google's so good these days. Um, I thought you'd be in a kind of better place than anyone to say, like, are the, do you see any intrinsic differences? Intrinsic, is that the right word? Um... I think it's personality. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I mean, but I think I think I can recognise differences in myself. Um, but I think increasingly that gender split will get muddied because I think in the past people were probably persuaded 
to pursue the, the personality traits that were felt to be appropriate with your gender. So it was culturally influenced? Yeah, I think so. Because I think, you know, boys don't cry, you know, girls are feminine, you, you know, th- there's a sort of, there's a, there's a role that you're expected to have. The one thing I do notice... Um, and it's difficult because I'm of an age and, ge- you know, generation where we were, we were given those parameters. But um, I think on the whole, I'm much more collaborative and I'm really happy. You know, one of the things I love is, um, you know, working with people, encouraging people, giving everybody ownership of it. You know, as a creative, it's quite hard to give away the credit because that's your... You know, your bread and butter and of course we all want to be credited on the work but as I've got older I've been much happier to give away ideas um, and I think that's I noticed that's quite different from my male colleagues of my age who are still keener to keep the credit yeah. for themselves so I think that's a that's a slightly different Yeah. maybe that's to do with having kids and having to give yourself as a mother although the lovely thing I see when I first came into the industry you'd go home in the evening and all the guys were standing outside the pub all the guys who had kids were standing outside the pub because they kind of were trying to get out of, you know, bath time or bedtime or whatever. And it, Maybe it was because it wasn't the thing to be seen to do. But now the guys all want to go back. They all want to be involved in the raising of their kids. And I think that's right. And I, th- I think they're going to be rewarded so much more from having that relationship. And I find that a really gratifying thing to see. So I'm hoping that, of course, there will be different personalities and there are slightly different different <laughs> traits. So I, I, you, you will have Googled this. So I do think, you know, there are films that women tend to like and there are films that men tend to like and the sports that men lean towards and, you know, activities women lean towards. There, there are gender things. That is just, that's the way we are. But I think they're, they're more fluid than they used to be. Um, I noticed that in one of your events uh, that you were kind of leading on the premise of unstereotyping the world. Mm-hmm. And I, this instantly kind of um, hit me as... Because I always liked it. I'm like, oh, could I, could I do that? And then I was thinking about how I go about answering a brief and so we'll find out we're trying to hit a certain demographic. And then in your head you go, right, so where are these people hanging out? What do they wear? What do they do? And instantly, regardless of who it is you're trying to answer to, you start to paint a picture in your brain of who you're trying to communicate to. And whether they are negative stereotypes or just stereotypes of people, I was like, how would I do, my, how would I do what I do without making those generalisations? It's, 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 it's fascinating. And it's a, I think it's a massive responsibility that we've all got. So, you know, Unilever speak to more people than Disney's Frozen did, for instance. So you're going into people's homes and affecting people. Um, and uh, it's very hard because there's quite a lot of advertising out there at the moment where you can see it's quite clunky. So you go, oh, look, we can tick box. We've got, you know, gay couple, disabled person, you know. Asian person you know you can go right we've got we've ticked all the boxes of the things that we need to have and in some ways I really applaud that because you go until we start having a mixture in our ads it's never going to happen I think it's fine if the if it's irrelevant who goes where it's just that's the cast that you've cast it's not so fine if um, you're making a big point about that although I think the Maltesers work that AMV did before I was there um, uh, they, they did run a competition to 
um, normalised disability um, around the Paralympics and they did some very funny work for Maltesers and I think that was right and it was very sensitively done with stories from disabled people. So it was, That was part of the Channel 4, they got a million pounds worth of free ads. Yeah, spend. absolutely. So, so I try and I do it myself. I think we all do it. So, you know, when you're writing a script, don't make the script about unstereotyping people. But, for instance, if food is being put on the table, does it have to be a woman putting the plate of food down? If there's washing up being done, does it have to be a woman doing the washing up? If, you know... If somebody's kicking a football around, does it have to be a boy? You know, and it's just things where I hope you probably don't even notice that that's done, but that sort of seeps into the way we think about things. And, you know, at the moment, we're all a little bit self-conscious. We've got a gay couple holding hands. So, you know, oh, look, aren't we right on? But you kind of have to do that. Um, but you have to try and normalise it. So, um, so it's basically these subtle cues, not... Uh yeah, like you say, so not trying to play to the to the stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, just, just, you know, do I really, really, really need this person to be what I know? And I write, I do it myself, I write yeah. stereotypes, you know. Um, so do I really need to do that? And, and would this look too self-conscious if I changed it? And if not, let's change it. Before I move on to the quick fire questions, uh. um, I have to I have to ask you last question on this whole diversity thing. Does it ever um, affect you that that is something that is part of your character as opposed to wholly being the work, or are you? Uh, do you think that you've kind of taken that role in order to empower people? Oh God, um, what do I think about it? And uh, I think I think. From the from the get go, um, I have been trying to ch- shift things around. So I think the very first ad I did was for Pretty Polly. It was for stockings. Um, it was in a very sexist in the eighties, very sexist time, and I wanted to do something that was more about women empowerment than women as sex objects. And um, and I was really pleased with the ad. Actually, you know, it's a it's a woman. The car breaks down. Um, old car, fashion cars used to have fan belts and engines that you could open up and look into and fix yourself. <laughs> and so she pulls over, she lifts her skirt, you see she's wearing stockings and she takes her stocking off and she pulls the broken fan belt out, ties her stocking round and fixes the fan belt and the car goes off. So that's a great way of showing stockings without it being the male gaze. And, you know, she looks cool, she's empowered, she, you know, she fixes the car, she moves on. So... That's an example of how, you know, when I very first entered the industry, I was like, how can I just make sure that I'm not doing work that I hate? Um, I've constantly tried to cast black lead heroes in things that I've been working on. Quite a struggle, quite often, honestly. You'll be amazed at how many brands try and wriggle out of it for all sorts of excuses, which I think... Well, what's the, without, if you don't want to name and shame, but what's, say, like a, the worst example you've seen? Well, you know, you try and do a multi-vignette um, ad with lots of different people, and you're casting different people, and it's for Europe, and you're told that um, the, the Polish people hate black people, and they will not run the ad if you have a black person in it. And, you know, open for debate, but I sort of feel... I'm not going to get bogged down with what I'm told about other countries because that's also incredibly racist. But maybe us as a brand should be out there going, this is our point of view. We don't see colour. We see families and we see people. And this is what our ad is going to be. 
And, you know, they should be brave enough to do that rather than get sucked into the debates about which country likes which race. So that's my... So as an agency leader, for example, and you you find yourself in that situation, do you do you pull the work if they, uh, if they refuse? You're in an impossible position in that situation. I... In that particular situation, I managed to, I managed to get a diverse cast, so um, I was very pleased about that. Yeah, well, but done. we had a few battles on that. <laughs> so, uh, I'll, f- I'll jump into quickfire questions. So, favourite ad and why? Mm-hmm. I, 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 I've to uh, more with the digging. I've seen three that you mentioned recently. Well, I'm probably choose. I probably choose an old-fashioned ad. I think it'd be Levi's Creek. Right, I just love it. It's so beautiful. It's still, I still look at it and go, it's an absolutely beautiful. And that's Nick and John's work, Nick Worth and John Gorse. I do love it. It's beautiful. Um, what are some books that you recommend to people and why? Well, I'm a great fiction person, so I'm not going to tell you to read lots of books about advertising. Obviously, other than John Hegarty's, after the nice words he said <laughs> about me. Um, oh, oh, that's such a big big question because my head is now full of a million zillion books i read classics all the time and i think um and i read um balzac who i love and i read trollope and one of the things i find fascinating about those great fictional novels by those masters is that human nature never changes and that you will recognize personalities and individuals from those ancient tomes um today and we're talking to people and we're trying to understand how people operate. And you get a great idea about, you know, the levers you can pull talking to people from those books. Amazing. And your favourite movie or documentary? My favourite movie, very changes all the time. But at the moment, <laughs> um, because I've been looking at it for a personal project, it's Night of the Hunter by Charles Lawton in 1955. And it's right. a really crazy film. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll go, sh- go check it out. Yeah, with all of these references mentioning, if people go to my website, rickyvitches.com, and actually watch this or listen to this podcast, probably should have said this at the beginning, but you can actually click on all of these references and watch them whilst whilst um, listening to the show. So. I know they sound old-fashioned, but it's just, um, you know... If yeah. I say that what happens with modern films is you enjoy them and then you kind of get over them, don't you, as opposed to going back and True. looking at them again and again. And so, uh, second to last question, what are you working on at the moment? And uh, is there anything else you'd like us to check out? Anything you want to plug right now? And where can people get hold of you? Uh, um, I am the queen of chocolate at AMV. So I'm working on all the Mars brands. So Mars and Snickers. And we've got a great project on Snickers. I'm crossing fingers it's going to happen. Um, and Maltesers and um, M&Ms. Have I said that? I feel like it's one of those, you know, <laughs> um, ah, what else am I doing? Um, and I'm also working on Twinings and uh, anything else that comes up. Wow. Agency design. Um, I'm sure I've left off one of the chocolate brands. Galaxy! How could I forget Galaxy? So yeah, that's a really right. exciting project. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so f- look out for those. Look out for those. And then if people want to reach you, or are you under the radar? No, they can reach me. I'm, I'm head of art at AMV BBDO. Okay, so Google, and you'll find an email somewhere, I guess, or contact the agency? Yeah, you'll just contact the agency. Okay. You'll find me. And then uh, final question, so it's a tough one. But if you had to give one piece uh, of advice to help people live a better and more meaningful life, 
quite a heavy one, what would you say? See the positive in everything. I think, um, you know, I've had a rocky road, as we've discussed, and I'm, you know, I sometimes <laughs> say if somebody made a film of my life, you would get up and walk out and go, this is unreal. And I'm not going to be defeated by it, and I'm not going to see myself as um, unlucky, and I'm not going to see life as unfair, because I think what I need to do is, you know, so many people who have such difficult lives, so I feel be positive, stay upbeat, and try and see the good in the situation. Try, however bad it is, try and find the good in it, because that, you've got to hang on to that to try and pick yourself up and keep going. I normally like to end it right there, but I want to dig into that a little bit, just because I I've, I've meet very, very few people that seem as happy and charismatic and uh, full of life as yourself. Is that something that you've always had, or have you had to develop that? Uh, <laughs> my brother, <laughs> it's enormous fun when my beloved mum died recently, and he got all the school reports out, which have got things like, Butterfly brain doesn't stop talking, <laughs> um, distracting the other students. You know, so basically, I've probably always been a bit of a chatterbox and a there. Uh, yeah, I think I've I've probably tried to cultivate it a bit because I think enthusiasm is probably the best tool. And John Bartle actually, um, before he retired, said to me, Rosie, Rosie never lose your enthusiasm. <laughs> and at the time I felt a little bit offended because I thought, oh God, is that it? Have I just got no creative talent at all? All I've got is enthusiasm. But I realised, um, you know, over the years that he's right and that enthusiasm is infectious and you can motivate and encourage and inspire people by enthusiasm. Great. Thank you so much for coming here today and for all your advice. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you. So, thank you everyone and uh, thank you for tuning in. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. Listener.